This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. You'll see in the middle we have somebody by the name of Luigi Warren and on the far right hand side a very ugly person by the name of Nick Hudson. <laughs> uh, he's the head of Panda, Pandemics Data and Analytics, and he knows absolutely nothing about pandemics and data and analytics. And then in the middle we have Luigi Warren. And let me just get this right because the internet is full of uh, misinformation. The inventor of the mRNA, messenger RNA technology, on which Moderna was founded. Have I got that right, Luigi? I think that's a reasonable statement. Yes. There is no single inventor of mRNA. People think there is. That's, uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, so, of course, mRNA exists in nature, but um, people have been making synthetic mRNA since at least, I think it goes back to at least the early 80s. Um, and there have been many incremental improvements in the technology over that time. Uh, but it's only very recently that there's been a lot of excitement about uh, potential uh, medical clinical applications. And um, to a significant extent, it was my work that um, led to that excitement and to the inflow of billions of dollars of investment uh, capital. Um, but the field itself is old, and you're quite correct to say there's no one inventor of mRNA. I mean, without you, Moderna might not exist today. Uh, Moderna would presumably not exist. Um, there would be, uh, so BioNTech, for example, which is the, the other major uh, mRNA vaccine producer at the moment, um, that company or some predecessors of that company existed back in 2010 when I did my work. And they were already working on can, um, sometimes referred to as cancer vaccines. These are not prophylactic vaccines to prevent you from getting a disease, but they're, um, they're also called immunotherapies. They're an attempt to get the immune system mm. to revved up against cancer. And that's something that they'd already been working on for quite a while and already been attracting uh, quite significant investment capital that was happening in Germany. It was another company, CureVac, working in more or less the same vein. Mm. Um, but where it really went big time was uh, when Moderna came on board and started to get uh, priced at huge valuations um, through their early funding rounds. And then people really started to think that this is going to be maybe the next big thing. That, you know, next, it's going to be plastics, right? This is going to be the future. and. There is really a lot of doubt and skepticism, which I think a lot of it was justified as to whether this was mainly hype, um, because there's a lot of problems with developing therapies based mm. on uh, synthetic mRNA. And um, up until two or three years ago, there was certainly there would be certainly plenty of people who didn't expect Moderna to do well and, and thought that it was going to be. Um, damp squib and that even to some extent their IPO was a little bit of a damp squib although it's still you know, I think like five billion dollars uh, and then they found their killer app in COVID-19 so um, which is actually very very vaccines in general prophylactic vaccines 
which is the traditional, what we think of as a vaccine to prevent you from getting a disease, are uh, pretty easy to do with mRNA. Mm. I think that's the main, main advantage of the technology for vaccines is just easier and, and a little bit quicker to, to at least have a vaccine candidate, whether that really makes a difference in the, in the long run, because normally the, the timeline for vaccines is driven by how long it takes to prove that they're safe and efficacious. And of course, they kind of threw that out the window with COVID-19, much to the um, benefit of the shareholders of uh, Moderna and, and Pfizer. So, uh, I was, uh, for about 15 years, uh, a software engineer. And in midlife, in my late 30s, I went back to school to get a uh, second, um, first a bachelor's degree. In, um, and then I, I went to Caltech and did my PhD in biology. And then I went uh, to Harvard Medical School uh, to do what's called a postdoc, which is your kind of uh, apprenticeship training. And it was during that postdoc that I, I developed this uh, messenger RNA technology and uh, my boss and everybody my boss talked to realized that it was going to be um, a big thing. And um, I guess he networked around, talked to venture capitalists, and that's that's how we ended up with Moderna. Yeah, okay. I guess my, my night job is as uh, chairman of Panda, which, as you mentioned earlier, and that has been something that's been on, ongoing since February. By day, I'm a, a lowly investor, yeah, slave of mammon. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's been a busy year. We have at Panda stood against lockdowns in principle from the very beginning. Um, concerned that governments didn't do any cost benefit analysis. Uh, concerned that nobody had thought about the, the public health consequences of locking down. And then as Panda grew and attracted more and more scientists into its community, we started analyzing all aspects of the pandemic, concluding as we went along that the entire narrative was false and that the world has made a series of terrible blunders that will set it back on any number of dimensions um, and all needlessly. Mm. Um, and at the hands of some downright evil people. Mm. I think everybody understands that the blueprints for our bodies are in our DNA. So that's pretty much everybody gets that now. Um, and I think people understand that most of what those blueprints specify are a set of proteins, which are basically the bricks and mortar of the body. So you have the blueprints, and then you have uh, the bricks and mortars of the building. Um, messenger RNA is a sort of working copy of a small element of the blueprint. Generally, um, it's, it's, a it's a copy of a single gene specifying a single protein. And, um, and it's just that, it's a working copy that uh, is then used by the cell uh, to make the proteins. And it has some attractive features from the standpoint of uh, um, therapeutics. Uh, one is that it's, it's very easy to make mRNA for any protein. I mean, you can literally, uh, once you know, 
have the sequence of a protein, within a week, you can be mass producing mRNA. I could even do that in, in the lab on a relatively, on a smaller scale, uh, back when I was working as a postdoc. And now Moderna and Pfizer have these huge factories. Um, but you know, they knew very early on when COVID-19 emerged that the spike protein, single protein uh, of COVID-19 um, uh, was the most immunogenic protein, most easily recognized, and most effectively recognized um, by the immune system. And they could generate RNA that would tell cells to make copies of that protein. They could, they could turn that around in about a week. Mm. And in fact, they, I believe they did many different uh, candidates and little variations and do they express the whole protein or just a piece of the protein. Uh, proteins are a lot more difficult to work with because their chemistry is just a lot more uh, complicated. Um, also, proteins are quite difficult to get inside the cell as a drug. We sometimes do use proteins. You've heard of things like EPO, where you can inject it into somebody and it goes in the bloodstream. But those are generally proteins that work by um, signaling to cells from their outside. But of course, a lot of interesting stuff only happens inside the cell, never gets out of the cell. Now, it's practical, it's not easy, but it is um, easier to get mRNA into cells than it is to get protein into the cells. And uh, once you have found a way to do that, mm. then it doesn't matter what the chemistry of the protein is, it's always the same process. So that's, that's pretty attractive because it means that you can, uh, uh, once you've developed that delivery system, you can express any protein you want inside a cell. And that's useful in the case of vaccines because um, one of the important ways in which the immune system learns about and, and tr it trains itself uh, to recognize um, foreign proteins is that those proteins are inside the cell and they get digested and presented um, on the surface of the cell. So there's antibodies and then, uh, and then there are T cells which, which, which work with these uh, presented fragments of proteins. So there are significant benefits to, to using messenger RNA um, as a way of uh, getting the body to express proteins to do a variety of different things. But one of the easiest things to do is to express um, uh, viral antigens. In fact, the virus works in more or less the same way. In the case of uh, something like COVID-19, it's a long piece of mRNA that specifies proteins and it gets into cells by a somewhat similar process that it's uh, kind of wrapped inside a, a shell which sticks to the sticks stick, stick to the surface of cells gets internalized and and that RNA gets expressed so it's very you know, it's quite quite a similar process but and, um, from the main sorry go ahead Nick yes yeah, so I mean my understanding is that the coding is such that it causes the cells to produce in this case this the famous spike protein from the coronavirus is there is there any particular reason why the guys decided that it was that portion of the viral protein that needed to be produced and not some other portion well i should emphasize i'm not a vaccinologist and in fact was never 
involved mm. with Moderna itself. So mm. I'm just uh, giving you the basis of what I've read, uh, the summary of what I've read and understand about this. Uh, and I believe that that was just, uh, people have been studying these coronaviruses for years and um, you know, related viruses, COVID-19 didn't come completely out of the blue. There's plenty of related viruses. Obviously, SARS itself uh, was very intensively studied after the course of a relatively minor pandemic uh, some years ago. And so people uh, studied which proteins would be most effective in eliciting an immune response. And uh, they glommed onto the spike as being the most important one. Um, so I think it's it's as straightforward as that. And in principle, uh, you could use the mRNA technology to deliver all the proteins of the virus. After all, that's what the, mm. the virus does. It's a little particle that contains RNA specifying, I think it's about half a dozen different proteins. Uh, but I think technically it was just easier to focus on this one protein, which they expected to be very effective at eliciting an immune response. Now, whether that is really a good strategy long term, I think that's that's really questionable and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see because essentially you're, you're, you're educating the body to recognize just a single protein, whereas mm. in natural immunity, uh, the body is learning to uh, see that protein in the context of several other foreign proteins. And um, I think there are sound reasons to be concerned that the vac vaccine-based immunity might be giving uh, giving um, the virus an easy target to kind of evolve around relative to natural immunity. So I don't think it's, you know, I understand the technical reasons for it, and it may be that that will turn out to be a good, good call, but especially since this has been rushed through normal, you know, mm. very, the normal, very prolonged kind of studies that would be done before uh, authorizing the vaccine, um, I think it's a cause for concern. It's also a cause of concern just because uh, a huge number of people, potentially billions of people, are going to be uh, getting their immunity from these vaccines. I believe the Pfizer and uh, Moderna vaccines are practically identical in, in terms of what expressing a complete full-length spike protein. I believe both the J&J &J and AstraZeneca are very similar in terms of what protein they express. So all four of the main um, Western vaccines that are in, uh, were rushed into use uh, have this aspect of just expressing a single viral protein. And right. Whether that is wise to do that, I think is an open question. Luigi, a, a couple of things. A couple of things that might be worth mentioning, though, is it's quite a long protein. It's it's quite a mm. substantial portion of the virus. You know, I, I think something in the region of a third of the base pairs or thereabouts um, are represented. I was checking that the other day, and I think it's more like one sixth. A sixth. Okay. Okay, but still quite a big chunk. And sure. so from an immunological point of view, there would be multiple epitopes landing on the spike. Um, if there was some kind of a mutation, 
it might knock out one, maybe two of those epitopes and the other ones would still be hitting that spike, um, or we hope so. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, controversy among experts about um, how, how readily the, um, the uh, coronavirus will be able to mutate and is mutating around immunity and um, what, how that would differ between natural immunity mm. and, uh, and immunity based on these uh, spike only vaccines. I think we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, and you have some people who are really, really worried about the consequences of this, mm. um, and other people who think it's going to be no big deal. And mm. I don't know. I, I don't know the answer. Uh, the only thing is that uh, it's a very high stakes game mm. because if we have the wrong answer. Um, the consequences could be very bad. Yeah, but I mean, who's going to be held accountable? Nobody, if the answer is wrong. Well, uh, the other aspect, not only is it high stakes, but we have no reason to believe that the um, people in authority here are going to look at this objectively or speak truthfully about it. Fauci. We may get lucky. It may turn out to be a non-issue. I mean, there are several issues like this. I've just mentioned one of them. There's obviously issues concerning uh, blood clots, issues concerning uh, myocarditis, uh, very high background, and a very high number of reports that's coming in from the field of, uh, of side effects. Um, we don't really know yet how real that is, what the implications are. I think we do know. I think we can be quite certain that the people in authority here don't want to hear any bad news about these vaccines. Mm. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, I think the, the really important thing to bear in mind is that these guys have lied about every aspect of the pandemic <laughs> so far. So why are they suddenly going to get honest about the vaccines? I mean, that's, that's something that just has to be understood mm. here. It means that it's going to be left to, to independent scientists, the few that there are, uh, because most scientists, as far as I can read it, are on the payroll of one or another of these big supranational organizations, which are all on the bandwagon and mm. not interested in establishing truth at all. Um, so you've got to find those independent scientists who, who can speak out without uh, fear of having being canceled, losing their careers and livelihoods, and make sure that you're getting your opinion from them and not from these guys who have grants from J&J and Pfizer and so on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I think... Unfortunately, yeah, there another aspect to it is that there are always um, bogus theories or bogus exaggerated concerns out there which yeah. kind of um, can be used as straw men uh, or just confuse people um, about the risk of the vaccine, just as there are about many other aspects, you know, it's a bioweapon or whatever. These are things that are um, very actually helpful to those in charge who would like to police the discussion because they can always point to uh, this crazy theory or that crazy theory. So I think we, unfortunately, there's there's no way around that. People are going to have diverse views and different levels of understanding and excitability about these topics. Um, really, we should be in a regime of... Uh, uh, you know, open discussion. Unfortunately, we're not. We're in a regime mm. of censorship that has really come in with frightening speed um, with the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, growing up, I would never have imagined that we could have fallen um, from Western ideals and, and, and standards uh, so far and so fast. It's, I mean, there are multiple ways of, of, of making um, vaccines. Uh, sometimes people use uh, dead viruses, sometimes they use attenuated viruses, kind of. I think that's the scenario you were talking about, where it's um, a harmless version of a virus or um, um, either artificially generated or even uh, something related in nature that just doesn't have the same impact. Um, the the J&J and AstraZeneca vaccines are very similar uh, in some ways to the mRNA vaccines in, in that they just uh, get into the cell and express this spike protein, but they do that using a different kind of virus as a backbone, a vector, um, to express the spike. So, uh, in my opinion, um, I don't see um, any really very fundamental benefit to mRNA vaccines um, beyond the fact that they're easy and quick to produce. Mm. And they may yet have uh, significant disadvantages. Basically, all these technologies have different disadvantages. For one thing, you can't get the mRNA into cells um, without encapsulating it in some kind of vehicle, these lipid nanoparticles. And there is a it's well known in the field that there's a bunch of problems with these lipid nanoparticles. And um, so there's no, there's no free lunch. Um, and I think we need to kind of turn down the hype on the mRNA vaccine. There's no huge breakthrough in, in, in vaccine, vaccinology here. At best, it's uh, a nice technology in that it makes it possible to spit out vaccine candidates pretty, pretty uh, quickly. But fundamentally, I don't see any huge advances in, in, in vaccinology coming from the use of mRNA vaccines. And in fact, they have been around uh, for quite a quite a while, I believe, uh, at least going back to the 90s. Not, I don't know that they've ever been really clinically used. And uh, but there's some kind of interesting history on this in that, as I mentioned, uh, BioNTech, Pfizer were primarily uh, the background there is the focus on so-called cancer vaccines, really cancer immunotherapy. Um, Moderna was hyped as uh, we can make any protein. And, uh, and so mRNA is going to revolutionize medicine. We can, uh, because we can we can educate the body to make any protein, but very early on they focused on um, vaccines. Their pipeline, their list of candidates of things that they had in tri in trials were uh, vaccines for in some cases I think mainly pretty obscure uh, diseases, and plus more cancer vaccines similar to what what Pfizer was working on. Um, and actually, the you know the financial experts kind of used that as a, a point to criticise Moderna that it really wasn't worth what people say it was worth because vaccines are pretty much a generic uh, kind of product. They're not usually a big money spinner, and uh, you're just doing vaccines because it's easy, and it is pretty easy 
to, to make vaccines because you don't have to get much mRNA into the body. I'm actually pretty amazed how little mRNA they use in, in these Moderna and Pfizer and CureVac shots. Only about 10 or 100 times what I put into a, a small Petri dish with 100,000 cells, but there's like 50 trillion cells in the human body. So you're really putting in a tiny amount of mRNA, but that's enough to educate the immune system. So that means all those side effects from the uh, vehicle that you have to use, the lipid nanoparticles that you have to use to get the mRNA in there are, are quite low, are relatively low because you only have to get a tiny amount in there. That's just the way the immune system works. It only takes a tiny amount of protein to educate the immune system. Um, but this idea that we're going to use mRNA for all kinds of other therapeutics, it's, it's I would still consider it uh, somewhat in the realm of hype today, 10 years mm. on. But the vaccines were easy enough, but they weren't expected to be money spinners. And then all of a sudden, COVID-19, and suddenly we have a requirement for several billion people to get a vaccine and to get it out there in a hurry. Uh, one interesting thing that happened early on in the um, uh, after Moderna was founded, or in, in its first few years, was that they got a grant, relatively small, $25 million, I think, from the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency to develop a pipeline for spitting out uh, mRNA vaccines very quickly. So there was kind of a niche where we had the possibility of biothreats, could be natural, but it could also be, you know, some kind of terrorist or biowar threat. And um, are, you, are you talking about the March 2019? Are you What's talking that? about the March 29? Are you talking about the March 2019 application? No, no, this was much earlier than that. This was oh, in yes. the early days of, of Moderna. Uh, okay. I'm not sure if Tony Fauci was involved in that because he does mm -hmm. get involved in these, um, even though he's not, uh, he, he's in the civilian branch. He was also quite involved with, for example, Cheney's project BioShield, so forth. So he might have had his finger in there. I'm not sure, but it struck me as at the time as a reasonable thing to do. You know, so what, what was one, the timing of that? Mrna, you can spit it, spit out a new candidate very quickly, potentially in weeks. Let's say that somebody had weaponized Ebola, mm -hmm. and terrorists had used it, and we we had some very transmissible uh, agent with the you know horrific effects of uh, pathology, pathogenic effects of uh, Ebola, and we just needed a vaccine you know, real quick. And even if it was not very safe, I mean, say this is killing 10% of the people get infected, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that was, uh, that was a rational thing to do, to, put, to use this novel mRNA technology to come up with a rapid platform for uh, fielding um, vaccines to respond to, to, to novel threats. So it made sense. And it was a you know, relatively small amount of money as these th things go. But the interesting thing is this is kind of a case where build it and they will come, you know, that, that's, that slogan, well, they built the platform, which people weren't really expecting to be that important because, as I said, um, vaccines are not seen as a really a, a big money spinner in the pharmaceutical business. And then out of the blue, here comes COVID-19, and they've got their killer app for messenger RNA vaccines. 
nothing to say that there's anything wrong or sinister about that, but it's it's worth recognizing that uh, investors have put a lot of money into this enterprise and uh, not really seeing a lot of return or prospect of uh, a big return, hence the rather, rather damp IPO. Mm. And then uh, suddenly this fantastic opportunity has come along with the pandemic to make a shit ton of money off this technology. Dave, Dave wants to know what is shedding. And that's a great question because you were suspended recently from Twitter. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yes. What, so I'm, what I'm, happened I'm, there? I'm now just avoiding this topic completely on Twitter, despite getting quite a few questions about it, uh, just because we're under a regime of censorship where even if you're kind of trying to uh, assuage people's fears, as I was, and I got kicked off uh, temporarily, um, you set yourself up to be um, cancelled, and then you can't talk about the things that you are really <laughs> interested in. I don't even find shedding very interesting. It's this notion that people are vaccinated. They produce spike protein, because that's what the, 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 the vaccines do. And uh, people have come up with this notion that the spike protein, because it's been shown to be toxic in and of itself, you know, you don't have to have necessarily a, a, a replicating virus to damage the body with spike protein. The spike protein itself, there's quite a lot of evidence, causes damage to the, to the body. Uh, so people have glommed onto this as... Oh, if uh, you're near somebody who's been vaccinated, they could be, just as a virus can hop from one person to another, this spike protein could be hopping from one person to another. And there are people claiming that they feel sick and so on and so forth. Uh, my personal opinion is this is a bit about them being sickened by somebody else's spike protein is science fiction. I'll just be clear that that is my view. You're free to come to your own conclusions about it, but. I just don't buy it. I do think that uh, there's a separate issue of whether there, we might be seeing side effects from the vac these vaccines that, such as the blood clotting and the brain hemorrhages that we saw definitely with AstraZeneca and J&J. It's not so clear if that's, that's happening with the two mRNA vaccines. Well, that might be due to the, sorry, Nick, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna ask you, <clears throat> I mean, was it really a surprise to the FDA to find that the spike protein made its way into the plasma? Um, I don't know. I was I saw uh, something, uh, an interview. I think it was Brett Weinstein and um, uh, Robert Malone, who was one of the pioneers of mRNA vaccines long before Moderna, uh, and he seemed to think that they should have realized that could be a problem. And he mm. seems like a very credible guy. I don't know that much about him, but um, seems like a very sober and knowledgeable uh, observer. So at the end of the day, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Uh, are the level of side effects acceptable or not? They did some mm. trials, but did not, did not do 
um, you know, the kind of extended trials that normally happen before a vaccine uh, is given out to people. And I guess it's not fully authorized. It's got this emergency use authorization, but we all know that there's tremendous political pressure to ram this through and basically ram these vaccines down our throats now. There's just no question. That yeah, I mean, the, the, this was sort of, you know, it's the same thing that was behind my first question of, you know, what made them uh, focus on generating the spike? Because, you know, from a layman's perspective, it's the spike that is, if you will, the, the business end of the virus. And so mm -hmm. you're chunking out this spike protein, which is the thing that attaches to the receptors all over the body, the famous ACE2 receptors. Um, and if there was going to be a leak of that into the, uh, into the circulatory system, well, you'd kind of expect those spikes to find their way around the body and perhaps start interfering with all the organs that have a dense expression of ACE2 receptors, which includes some pretty sensitive organs like the endometrium and the testes. I think the kidney is pretty richly mm -hmm. expressed in ACE2. And of course, the whole vascular system has plenty of ACE2 receptors in it. So it, it sort of just struck me as kind of doubly strange that they went and focused on the spike and then that for it, it, on the face of it, it would seem that the FDA was told and believed that there would not be this phenomenon of uh, a circulatory, circulatory system involvement in uh, the spike protein. Um, it, 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 the, the combination of those facts for me is just quite strange. Yes, I, I don't know. I find it necessarily strange and I don't... Mm -hmm believe that there's necessarily a problem here. I think it's reasonable mm. to be concerned about it. And mm. I did notice, um, first of all, you know, they have, they have to pick something. And mm. there's no guarantee that, uh, or no, uh, viral viruses are made of foreign proteins and those, some of those proteins sometimes have uh, direct toxic effects. I think they normally the the biggest problem for the body is that you don't want to have a parasite replicating and consuming your resources, but also sometimes uh, what the viruses do um, or the, what they're made of is sometimes directly toxic. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I don't think they could necessarily have foreseen that it would be a huge problem. And truthfully, we still don't know how serious a problem it is or even if it's a problem at all. Um, but I also noticed that there was a lot of pushback from, shall we say, vaccine boosters or vaccine cheerleaders, including scientists, that, oh, um, this, the spike doesn't uh, circulate, you know, doesn't get into the, into the bloodstream and it's localized to the point of injection and so on. And I think that is looking very dubious now. And I think yeah. it's rather typical of the way that, uh, you know, people are hiding under their credentials or you know, claiming to be experts and giving the most benign interpretation of anything that right, right, right. Um, what, but vaccines. So is, but is it I, to... you know, I would say that you know that's that's reasonable. That the, the, the spike uh, could be causing some side effects, including things like blood clotting and brain hemorrhage. That's it's a candidate mechanism. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, I don't find it plausible that you could have enough spike in your body jump from one person to the next person to cause no. problems because we just don't see that in medicine, that, basically. That's much harder Think to understand, it. isn't it? Yeah, much harder to understand. 
Um, well, I understand so why. Am I right in saying that you, you're? Sorry. Sorry, I'm just going to complete the thought. I understand right. why Labour might might worry about that, um, but it's it's, yeah. it's just not a serious possibility. It's far fetched. Um, okay, so it, it, to summarise, then your main issue is the the rush, the speed to or the speed of the testing with. Um, I think the average participants in the Pfizer study was only in the study group for two months or the median. Um, and so your, your concern is that in that rush, testing only on a, a population of pretty healthy under 65 year olds uh, to decide that this thing was effective and safe based on the, the, the sort of um, this very strange definition of success, which was reduction mm -hmm. in symptoms amongst a group of people who are not really at risk of the virus in the first place. Um, you're now going to go and plunge that needle into the arms of every elderly and vulnerable person on the planet. Um, mm. That's the problem. I would say that's one of the problems. That's one of the main problems. Um, and we're seeing some evidence that the risk profile of these vaccines is not is not good, especially for you know the young, younger people. Um, maybe some, you know, children. I find that absolutely crazy that they want to uh, put this vaccine in children. Um, but even even kind of middle aged people, um, I don't even think that it's that compelling a case. Uh, yeah. If you're if you're older, unless it, I mean, kind of you know, do a double take. Do I feel like I'm at death's door? If I feel like I'm at death's door, then I'm possibly going to die a bit earlier from coronavirus, so maybe it's worth taking a chance on the vaccine. If I feel like I'm not at death's door, I'm not sure I'd take a chance, even if I was 70 or 80 years old. However, that's that's just one major problem, is that they rushed it through trials and uh, basically abrogated and forgot about decades of experience or just just under um, you know considerable political pressure from a coalition of actors who have aligned objective to get us hooked on these vaccines for, for different reasons. Uh, and the second major concern is um, could the spike only vaccines or vaccines in general uh, have some kind of bad impact on the evolution of the virus right. um, and could promote um, more dangerous versions of the virus, which, um, you know, in some ways, I think the vaccine companies would look on as potentially a benefit because, and you're already seeing that, they're talking about, oh, we're going to roll out a new booster. You know, maybe you have to get on a subscription model and get a new, co um, you know, uh, mRNA shot every six months. I mean, that's pretty sinister that they're, they're pushing that line. So I think that's a big area of concern. Uh, then there's the politics around it, the way they're, they're, they're obviously trying to get everybody hooked on these vaccines, mm. partly to sell the vaccines, partly to sell, you know, rule by public health experts, partly to mm. get us into the model of um, vaccine passports where basically everything we do, and we're already seeing this with the lockdowns, is by permission of the government, which puts them in position, politicians and bureaucrats in the position of gatekeeper. And, you know, they get to dip their beak and decide who wins and who loses. And this is, of course, the central dynamic of a mixed economy. 
but we're now in overdrive and have been already with uh, the NPIs, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, and now they want to make it permanent. And I sometimes refer to this as, uh, you know, this is like Global Warming Express. Global warming, stuff. Um, but global warming is getting a bit long in the tooth and all the predictions of disaster and why we must have a global government regulating all our industry uh, and, 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 you know, deciding how we live. Uh, it's, just, it's starting to wear pretty thin because the glaciers are not melting and yeah. ice caps haven't disappeared and it's getting... But all of a sudden, they find a way to ram this through on the basis of the pandemic, which we haven't touched on that yet. These very people are responsible probably for yes. causing this in the first place. I mean, it's pretty, it's sinister. Um, There's so many breaches of basic logic in it all. I mean, you know, our perspective is, is very much the same as Luigi's, that if you're under the age of 60, this disease, unless you've got a severe comorbidity, this disease is not a major threat at all. And so, you know, the, when you get, by the time you get down into the 20s and, and children, almost mm. any adverse events at all will be, uh, you know, higher in cost than the vaccine could possibly benefit you because the, 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 the risk presented by the, by the disease is just so infinitesimal. Mm. I mean, I saw a stat today out of 7 million children, you know, there were three deaths that were attributed to coronavirus. And of course, that comes with all the issues of you know, dying with versus dying from and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I look at this thing and I say, you know, pinch me. All you need to do, assuming the vaccines are safe and effective, which is quite a big assumption, given how weird the trials are and the people who are looking, the, the conflicts of interest of the people who are overseeing all of this. Um, but assuming they're safe and effective, all you need to do is vaccinate those people who have not yet been exposed and recovered from the virus and who are over the age of, you know, give it 50 or 60 years old. And in a country like South Africa, that's maybe 5 or 10% of the population, yet mm. these guys want to vaccinate 80%, which entails vaccinating 60% of the children in the country, assuming you get all of the adults. And I find that not just sinister, I find it sinister, creepy, obviously criminal. I cannot believe that everybody in media and everybody in the healthcare professions is going along with this and saying, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's, just, uh, you know, that's what happened in Nazi Germany, right? This, uh, uh, yeah. The biomedical scientists and clinicians were the tip of the spear um, in the um, development of the Nazi state. And uh, mm. I don't think that our biomedical scientists or doctors as a class are any different from those in Germany in the 1930s. I, I see no reason to assume that the, their personalities would be different. Um, and I think it's perfectly obvious that the people making the decisions here, they're not motivated by great concern for uh, you know, preserving uh, an extra six months of life for people in care homes. I mean, that's perfectly obvious from the way they behave. I mean, one of the most prominent exponents of the whole lockdown strategy, actually several of them, but pick on Governor Cuomo, actually used a reverse 
quarantine strategy where he sent COVID, you know, people were basically shedding COVID, shedding virus to um, old people's homes and caused yeah. maybe another 15,000 grandmas and grandpas to die. And he obviously doesn't care about that. This whole, this whole you know, Nancy Pelosi doesn't believe in masks or Tony Falke doesn't believe in masks when the cameras are off. Uh, often they don't wear masks. We've seen this time and again. G7, um, what leader does? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's absolute nonsense. It's transparent nonsense. What we have is that they sense a tremendous opportunity. In fact, I mean, I mean, you've probably seen the video going around the, the kind of supercut reel of all these people, all these leaders talking about how this pandemic is a fantastic opportunity to build back better or a great mm -hmm. reset, whatever that means. What that means is a system of basically uh, what George Orwell called oligarchical, in 1984, oligarchical collectivism. Yeah. In other words, an allegedly benign uh, oligarchical system where a wealthy and connected elite decide what's good for everybody else who everybody else doesn't get to jet around and needs a vaccine passport to and, and permission from the government to to run a business and uh, it's quite obvious uh what kind of society these people want which is very similar to the one that already exists in china today i mean you can see uh um, Mike Bloomberg, there's a nice video of an interview, television interview with Mike Bloomberg, um, who's seen as a centrist Democrat, um, saying how, uh, you know, chi the Chinese government is responding. It's not a dictatorship because it's ultimately it has to respond to its people. Uh, and it was perfectly, it's perfectly obvious to anybody looking at that video that Mike Bloomberg thinks that that's a great system. We should probably be more like China. And people like Mike Bloomberg would get to cause, call the shots even more than they do in our own society already. Mike Bloomberg is not an exception. They all think like that. If you pick up The Economist newspaper, which used to be, you know, in the dim and distant past, the voice of classical liberalism and the idea that uh, omnipotent government uh, is uh, something that needs to be um, avoided and contained. Um, now, every cover is about global warming or vaccines or all the rubbish that we see these people spouting at G7 and um, as, you know, uh, uh, Aspirin and whatever uh, elite conferences they, they go to in their private jets to preach about global warming. <laughs> It's, it's absurd. I don't know how anybody can take it seriously. Unfortunately, we have to take it seriously because it's a very um, uh, malignant uh, trend in the way that our, our society is going. That these these ideas. Yeah, are being it, it's very it's very odd, and it, it makes me wonder whether there isn't something about having lots of money that makes you stupid, because they, they, I mean, <laughs> we've got. It's the oldest lesson in history is that centralism is a failure wherever and whenever it's been tried. If you want to stop growth and never have any progress in society, this is what you do. You, you stick uh, a highly centralized authority in control of a society, mm. let alone the whole world, you know. Um, and they're going down a tried and tested path. 
every history book that you open will teach you this lesson. And off we go, because this time is different. It's not going to be like Venezuela, you know. Mm. Um, and there's nobody in our main media who um, speaks for these lessons of classical liberalism, mm. libertarianism, whatever you want to call it, uh, the ideas on which uh, America was originally founded, the ideas of uh, John Locke and then Adam Smith and so, so on. Um, those voices aren't in our main media by and large. There's just this no. overwhelming, because the main media is itself a creature of the state and a creature of the state and the corporations. Um, and those corporations, of course, being heavily allied uh, with, the, with the state. Uh, Luigi, it's, you could think of it as a form of fascism because what, what we're seeing now is not a traditional socialism, but a, a sort of fusion of the state and uh, private business to achieve socialistic or, or, or statist ends. And we're just, yes, you're right, we're, uh, Nick, uh, that's the path we're on. Luigi, you're not suggesting that uh, some of the mainstream journalists need to read a little bit of Murray Rothbard, are you? <laughs> I'm not going to bother suggesting it because I know it's not going to happen. <laughs> I did an undergraduate degree at Columbia University about 20 years ago, and yes, it, the Dominant ideas were kind of leftist, but you know, we studied people like Locke and had reasonable discussions about them. Uh, I have a feeling that that is not really happening because we have this you mm. know, woke nonsense uh, that you know is also a justification for ignoring you know the great great thinkers that after all they're just a bunch of old white guys, right? Probably racist. <laughs> Uh, so, unfortunately, our intellectual culture is just completely uh, imploded. Poison. Imploded is the right word, yes. And mRNA, you know, it's just a buzzword, really. It's like, uh, you know, this uh, soap powder has a biological ingredient in it. That's what you should think of when you hear people talk about mRNA vaccines. It's, mm. it's just the latest buzzword. It, it, it doesn't. It doesn't mean much. Yeah, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You, you wouldn't know, inject would be, one in you. I personally, I'm not saying I would never do it. I would wait and see how things develop. Is is, uh, is COVID going to come back seriously in the fall? Is it going to mutate? I suspect neither. You know, mutate into some more dangerous form. Uh, what's the risk profile of vaccines? So I'm not saying that I wouldn't consider it, but people should be aware that uh, mostly what we're talking about here is, is, is marketing. We've seen a horrific uh, hijacking of the prestige of science to sell people bullshit and you know, usher them basically yeah. into a totalitarian or quasi-totalitarian future. Which, by the way, is exactly also what happened in Nazi Germany. They used mm. scientific uh, jargon, scientific concepts. Actually, many real and prestigious scientists um, supported their program. So this is this is this is not new. I would say the closest parallel to what we're seeing is Nazi Germany, uh, in as much as although Russia, communist Russia and China. Yeah, Lysenko. Did, did, did have this element of uh, scientific boosterism. Um, really, the paradigm was established by Nazi Germany, 
and uh, uh, the involvement of clinicians. Again, that also happened in other uh, totalitarian societies, um, but it was very central in the, in mm. the Nazi. Yeah, what all of these what all of these settings have in common is that people stop seeing science as a process and start seeing it as an institution, as an orthodoxy. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you got Tony Fauci out there just the other day saying, you know, when people are attacking Tony Fauci, I think he even referred to himself in the third person, they're attacking, they're attacking science. science. Yeah, I mean, attacking science. Science. I think that did open a few more eyes that this guy is a narcissistic sociopath. He's a, he's a monster then. Yeah, this is the this is the thing that every every liberal person should be should be most in fear of is those words coming out of a senior scientist's mouth. Because whenever those words have come out of a scientist's mouth, disaster has ensued. Yeah, well, he's already, I think, probably is responsible for this disaster. I mean, I think he was probably ultimately responsible for causing the pandemic in the first place. And he's certainly been probably more than Neil Ferguson in, in the UK, mm. uh, uh, responsible for popularizing and normalizing these ideas this idea of lockdowns i guess neil Ferguson yes. is, a, is, a, is a real competitor there but falke has certainly done that and that's you know so directly through 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 unleashing the pandemic through which by trying to prevent pandemics supposedly mm. unfortunately accidentally causing one that's killing that's killed perhaps millions We'll probably kill tens of millions over the next uh, few decades as as it works through the world population. Meanwhile, over a hundred million people forced into um, extreme poverty, according to the World Bank. It's two hundred uh, million. Two hundred million, I believe yeah, it is. Yeah, the number keeps going up. I'm sure you know uh, uh, those people are all going to die early, all of them, basically. Mm -hmm because that's what extreme poverty does to you. Um, and many of them, most of them, probably a lot earlier than people who contract COVID. Yeah. So this, this, this response has magnified the mortality by 10 or 100-fold, certainly 10-fold, compared with that, that mortality in the virus itself. And again, you think about quality-adjusted life uh, years and so on, the virus mostly killing people um, in the last year or so of life, which is typically very low quality. Basically, the way to think about the COVID epidemic, I think uh, it's a good approximation anyway, is um, at any given time, about 1% of the population is in about the last 1% of their mm. life. COVID was never there. What is life like in for people who are in the last 1% of their life. We're all going to go through that, almost all of us. We're not killed in an accident, say. Um, you know it's pretty bad, and that the slightest thing, a fall, a uh, cold, a uh, flu, will push you over to the other side. Yeah. But those are primarily the people who are dying. And yes, there are some younger ones, but that's you know there's always a bunch of young people who, uh, a small, a relatively small number of young people who have maybe their... Uh, they have cancer, they're taking very, very damaging drugs. Maybe they're taking recreational drugs that have uh, you know, completely shot their immune system. Huge problem in the United States right now. Uh, also apparently related to you know, Big Pharma wanting to make a bunch of money. Um, 
that's 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 the reality of the epidemic. But even if it were true that these lockdowns and non-pharmaceutical interventions were effective, um, which it's not, but let's let's say it was true. Let's say that they're justified. Then that hundred million people who die early, sent to an early grave, that should be in in the ledger for Tony Fauci yeah. too. With the pandemic, that would make him probably the single biggest killer of human beings who's ever walked this planet. This is a guy who built up by the media as a, a hero and calls himself, you know, the embodiment of science. That's how. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Stalin, Fauci, Mao comparison is totally apt. Do you have any theories as to what is causing these resurgences that we're seeing in so many countries after they? initiate a mass vaccination program? That's a very interesting phenomenon. And I guess the orthodox opinion would be that this is all just a coincidence due to the introduction of uh, variants, which of course are not caused by vaccines. We do know that the variants that have been publicized, well, I guess we don't really know that they, they weren't caused by vaccine trials. I've seen that suggested too. Uh, but anyway, that seems to be the orthodox, uh, or it's all just a coincidence. And sometimes a coincidence is uh, mm. maybe mediated by a, a variant. Uh, I am not going to dismiss that idea outright, but I think it does look very suspicious. I'm very familiar with the data from Sweden because I've been tracking that on a daily basis for uh, over, over a year now. And it was interesting. I mean, it's very interesting that... Uh, there was an initial wave which died off during the summer um, and mostly most easy to see at the level of mortality because there wasn't saturating, saturated saturation testing at that point in Sweden. Um, but you saw, you know, curve goes up, curve goes down, goes down for two reasons. One is that a significant fraction of the, especially the most vulnerable uh, population has been infected and we know that those people generally uh, are immune or if they do get re re um, the disease again it will be very mild so that was expected the initial introduction of a novel virus uh, on an immunologically uh, immune population naive population you see rise and fall of the rate. then we know that coronaviruses um, tend to be seasonal and, and to come back in the uh, fall and winter. Um, for some reason, that was rather underplayed for this virus. I think there was some propaganda from the WHO, probably politically motivated, to suggest that this wasn't going to be a seasonal virus. And I don't really understand why that was taken so seriously, because most coronaviruses do behave in the seasonal fashion. But then we saw uh, a pretty strong resurgence, actually a strong resurgence uh, in the fall um, in Sweden and elsewhere. Some places managed to escape the initial wave probably because they, you know, Eastern Europe probably just didn't get many visitors with many cases coming in in the first place, but then they got hit in the winter. Because in the winter, the RO, the um, ability of the virus to transmit goes up for reasons that people don't seem to fully understand. So. And we saw that wave go up. And what that means is that you need more population immunity. You need more, pe more people need to get infected and become immune to counteract the ease with which the virus can, can transmit in the, 
in the high season. So that was not unexpected and the magnitude of it was, you know, worse than perhaps many of us hoped, but it wasn't uh, by any means unexpected or unprecedented. And then around, that peaked in Sweden around Christmas and then uh, the uh, epidemic waned. And then um, early in the new year, we saw a very distinct new wave of infections. And probably it's, I believe it was a real wave of infections and not just a case demic, because my impression is that they're pretty much saturating saturation testing and probably the testing was fairly stable at that point. So I think it was measuring something real. In addition, ICU admits with COVID-19 uh, positive ICU admits tracked the uh, quote cases. Deaths did not go up seriously, but they did seem to not go down as fast as you'd expect. So it did look like there was a third wave. The question is, what's driving that wave? Because we were then <clears> moving away from the seasonal peak RO, which would have been around the end of the year, I think the expectation, and certainly uh, more and more people were becoming immune. So I guess the um, conventional wisdom or the narrative would be that that uh, third wave was due to a mutation that caused the virus to become even more infective, even though it was moving away from the high season. And that has, by the way, now trailed off. Um, but it took, it took a while, and it was, very, it was almost like the first two waves. Um, but it's interesting that, that the timing of that third wave was basically coincident, like it really started a couple of weeks after they started mass immunization. So that's the example that I'm most familiar with and feel most comfortable knowing the data. I've seen people, as Nick just mentioned, cite many other examples where we seem to see uh, a wave, a new wave of COVID infections coming about around the time mass immunization starts. So I don't think we know that they're related. Absolutely wouldn't claim that but it's looking pretty suspicious. Mm. So could there be some kind of unintended consequence of the mass vaccination? Well, the vaccines, you know, it's not, the vaccines are definitely not infecting people. That's, no. not, that's, not, that's not physically possible. So we can rule no. that out. But there might be other more obscure mechanisms uh, which could be causing this. One thing to keep in mind is that these vaccination rollouts um, tend to be happening on a very large scale compared to the size of the wave. Like in the case of Sweden, I looked at the number of uh, new vaccinations every day versus the number of new infections in this wave. And it was like five to 10 times higher vaccinations than, um, than uh, uh, new cases. And this is in the context of saturation testing of the population really, where they're probably mm. catching almost every symptomatic new case. So we're monkeying with people's immune system on a very large scale, doing it very rapidly with these immunizations. And we're doing it in a, in a COVID-19 specific fashion. So the way we're monkeying with people's immune systems specifically is manipulating uh, uh, responses to COVID, uh, to the, the SARS-2 virus. There's a variety of possible mechanisms that might 
explain what's this coincidence could be that the vaccines somehow are um, creating selection pressure, evolutionary pressure to cause um, to promote new variants that actually are more aggressive, perhaps can escape immunity. Uh, could be that the vaccination process, the clinics, um, are actually super spreader events. I find it hard to believe that they couldn't drive that high, that high level of new infections, but mm. maybe there's a contribution there. And you have to remember that this is bringing people, in some cases, into hospitals, which are terrific places to spread coronavirus. So maybe there's something going on there. Also, I have to remember that many countries, including Sweden, prioritized um, uh, healthcare workers, frontline workers for the uh, for the vaccinations. So that's kind of interesting. We do know that the vaccinations, uh, uh, you know, they basically knock your immune system for six for a few days. It's one of the reasons why people often feel sick. Mm. So, it's, and we don't know who the super spreaders are. Of. We, uh, I haven't seen any explanation. We know that we know that COVID nineteen is not um, spread heavily by a few individual super spreaders, a minority of super spreaders. But we don't know what it is that makes them super spreaders. So hypothetically, one thing it might be is people who, for some reason or other, uh, their immune systems are are not working very well. So who knows, maybe after that first uh, jab, we have a condition called lymphocytopenia where um, the white blood cells, um, you know, their counts go, go, go down. Maybe that's kind of creating a window of opportunity for the virus. Either, and it could be, that could be interacting with this uh, evolutionary pressure, especially the spike-owning vaccines, you know, you're, providing kind of a soft target for the virus to mutate around. But it might not even involve that at all. It might just be that, hey, you've got a bunch of frontline workers who are walking, walking around for a few days not knowing that their immune systems are kind of wide open mm. to, be, to make their bodies into incubators for viruses, and maybe they are uh, becoming super spreaders in that process. Very, very speculative. I've seen other mechanisms that propose that the virus can hide out in parts of the body in a kind of dormant state and that somehow it could be reactivated. I don't know how seriously to take that idea. It seems to be not totally pseudoscientific, shall we say. Um, so maybe there's something to it. Um, I don't know if any of these things, if anything like this is going on. Um, basically, as a technologist and a problem solver, I am used to the experience that you do something and uh, it somehow blows back and doesn't mm. Un unintended consequences. Unintended consequences. Right. Yeah. In fact, usually when I'm trying to make progress developing a protocol, say it's an mRNA reprogramming protocol, what I do, and usually I try five things which look like they work on paper and maybe one of them works in practice and maybe some of the others actually make things worse. And usually I don't even inquire, I just say, well, okay, we'll go with the ones that make things better. But the fact is that when you do interventions, and this is mm. certainly very true in medicine, of course, everybody knows this, that a third or fourth largest cause of uh, death in the United States is you know, side effects from misprescribed 
medication, you're dealing with highly potent substances and you're monkeying with yeah. people's system and they're often sick in the first place. A lot of things can go wrong. So, so maybe something like that is going on here. And further to our earlier comments about the general environment that we're in, uh, I have no uh, confidence at all that the people in charge here are going to want to hear any bad news about <laughs> vaccines. Um, yes. Problems, if they, if, if they exist and they do relate to the vaccine, they might not be that serious. I mean, in, 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 in the case of Sweden, even if that third wave is wholly due to the vaccine and it's not due to some spontaneous variant, it looks to me like they'll enter the summer maybe 10 or 20% more deaths than they would have had. So maybe they shot themselves in the foot with the vaccine and killed another 10 or 20% more people. Worst case, maybe the vaccine's helping, but worst case is they had an unintended consequence and they actually ended up with more people dead. But at least it's not 10 times more people. But I mean, what's what's a few million worry people between friends? Yeah, <laughs> but I worry more about, you know, somewhere like India or in places that have not, didn't really get touched in the, I mean, I, I think Japan is a very interesting example because they have a lot of old people. They have more old people than any country on earth. Like, I think something like 25% of their population is over 65. Uh, they have escaped a major COVID-19 death of the kind of scale that we've seen in the Americas and we've seen in, in Europe of, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 nominally per million even now, with, uh, with the winter epidemic, okay, it was 10 or 20 per million, now they're up to 100 per million, which is still like almost in the background of flu-like deaths. Um, so one interpretation of that is uh, that they've got a lot of vulnerable people and they're sitting on a knife edge and they, you know, one variant and they, they're gonna wipe out a huge number of old people. Um, and that's an argument for them vaccinating at least they're old people and perhaps their entire population as soon as they can. Mm. But counter argument is none of the countries in the Far East have had very severe COVID mortality. You know, they're all kind of, you know, South Korea, Taiwan, um, China itself. Uh, and in, in, independent, really, most of these countries did not have widespread lockdowns. So there's, Japan almost followed a Sweden, almost less a fair strategy. They just did kind of localized lockdowns when they had a, an outbreak. So that might suggest that maybe their populations just are not as susceptible to these, to COVID-19, to the SARS-2 virus as in, in the Americas and Europe. And that's, you know, that could well be the case. Could be that because they're geographically, they're just closer to where related viruses uh, live and circulate that they just have more, as they call it, cross immunity from exposure to similar viruses. So maybe they don't need to vaccinate because maybe they're not really mm. at great peril, even though most of the population hasn't been touched. Or if it has been touched, it's been a mild condition. There's a crystal ball sitting in front of you. What do you see? Uh, what I see and hope to see is the, the United States, the Republicans, 
take the Congress next year, Ron DeSantis comes in um, in 2024, and uh, we put the clock back to where we were, and uh, uh, things go back to where they were before, to the way they were before, and all these evil schemes of all these evil actors from Boris to Tony Fauci, Ferguson, the whole rat's nest of them, uh, that they're swept away. And hopefully, hopefully the, uh, the, uh, the COVID origins story was gonna, which may implicate Tony Fauci, will help facilitate that. And that's what I hope to see. And I think there's a pretty good chance that that will happen uh, if we keep speaking up. Mm. Um, and, and to some extent, you know, I think already the United States is divided in two between largely red Republican states that are pursuing sensible policies on COVID and just about everything else. And then mm. a bunch of crazy states, including unfortunately the state that I'm in, California, where they're doing, uh, they're going down a uh, you know, they're doing everything the wrong way. Uh, and, you know, people are voting with their feet and moving to the red states. And hopefully that will be reflected in the election. But it's pretty scary. The power, the, the, the control, the level of control that the bad folk have over the mass media uh, and, you know, certain element, other elements, you know, they've very much infiltrated social media, captured most of. Uh, Silicon Valley, a lot of Wall Street. So they have a lot of cards to play. So I don't know whether my optimistic scenario is going to come true, but that's that's what I'm rooting for. Mm. Might and I recommend should. a vaccine? I'm going for another vaccine. Start <laughs> off this germ. Thank you very much. And thank you, Luigi. It's been a great pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your time. Germ, terrific. Seeing you. Bye-bye. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.